I was coming off on ghost dances with a group of dancers and we go around in a circle and we bow our head and we walk back and I thought she's never going to hear this music and this is going to be uh, this is going to be it I have to be with her who else can who else can teach her and I was just like I, I, I just have to hear her voice and so that moment I decided that um, that her life and our lives as a family was more important than one more performance. Welcome to the Balanced Ballerinas podcast. I am your host, Georgia Canning. And recently I've been looking at the stats from the podcast and I am blown away about the fact that there are so many people from all around the world that are tuning in. So I guess let's see if I can say hello in a couple of different languages. I've got uh, bonjour, hola, ni hao, ciao, konnichiwa, guten tag, um... I think that's about all I've got. (laughs) Anyway, it's my absolute pleasure to bring the Balanced Ballerinas community a beautiful story rich in Australian culture and ballet royalty today. Mary Lee was raised in Rockhampton, Queensland, amongst the chaos of seven other siblings. Her parents sounded absolutely phenomenal, loving and down to earth. The perfect recipe for supportive parents of a budding young ballerina. From the humble beginnings of a little ballet studio run by Miss Hanson in Rocky to the Royal Ballet School in London and Christmases spent at Covent Garden, Mary went on to tour all around the world with London Festival Ballet before taking a position with Houston Ballet that subsequently led to meeting the love of her life. Many of us know the story of Lee Shwing Singh, the current artistic director of Queensland Ballet, author of Mayo's Last Dancer, But few of us know the story of Mary and the incredible sacrifice she made for love, for family and for their daughter Sophie. Mary's Last Dance is the title of this very story and it hit bookshelves last week. Mary's memoir is an insight into her wonderful Australian childhood, dazzling career as a principal dancer, performing every lead role imaginable and touring with the likes of Rudolf Nureyev and being coached by Margot Fontaine. As you'll hear, I was incredibly nervous going into this interview. I was interviewing Mary the day after her book came out and her publisher had sent me a digital copy a week prior. Amidst the silly concert season I currently find myself in, I hurriedly consumed the pages to prepare for our interview. Whilst inhaling the pages of her new book, I learned just how incredible Mary's career was. And this made me really nervous. I was about to interview ballet royalty. And then on the day of our interview, Mary was watching me set up my podcast equipment when I asked if she'd done many interviews yet for the book release, to which she replied, yes, I've just finished an interview with Sarah Kanowski for ABC's Conversations. I almost died. <laughs> I was interviewing Mary right after one of Australia's top journalists. No pressure guys, no pressure. Nerves aside, I have to be honest, I absolutely loved this book. I knew I'd enjoy it, but I wasn't expecting to absolutely love it. I didn't expect to feel, I guess, as emotionally swept up by the pages as I did. 
Whilst the glitz and glamour of Mary's life as a professional ballerina is fascinating, I actually loved the wholeheartedness of her dad waking her up for rehearsals as a young girl, her mum helping her purchase a winter coat in preparation for a life in London, and the references to tallie beers and hills hoists and barbecued prawns just really shone through for me. Maybe it's the fact that I turned 30 this year. Maybe it's the state of the world we currently live in. Maybe it's the trauma we're collectively feeling as a result of this world pandemic that's making me feel, I guess, so nostalgic and sentimental for the small things in life. But Mary's story is another reminder about what's really important in life. Family, friendship and love. A beautiful story, a beautiful reminder about how incredible this country I live in is. An extraordinary woman. After our interview, I half expected Mary to quickly get up and go about her busy day. But instead, she instantly turned the tables on me, asking questions about my own ballet journey, the podcast, our community, and my ambitions. Such a beautiful woman. I'm sure you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. And as always, you can connect with me on Instagram at The Balance Ballerina, or even better, hit that green follow button on Spotify or wherever you are listening to this podcast from. Enjoy my interview with Mary. First of all, congratulations, Mary. The book is really wonderful. I have about 100 pages to go, like I was saying, and I'm beyond actually nervous to talk to you today because after reading about your amazing career and life, um, I'm sitting across from ballet royalty. Really, it's phenomenal. And so thank goodness you had such a charming true Aussie um, upbringing filled with tally beers and hills hoists because it sort of calmed my nerves down a little bit uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, and I'd like Familiar. to yeah and I'd like to start there um, you were one of eight children tell us about growing up as one of eight well I was in yeah uh, the eldest girl of eight so I I feel I parented my the younger two but I was uh, surrounded by boys and my mother says I was fairly wild and I was just always interested in, in other people and things that were going away. So I was a little bit of a runaway child. So after school each day I would go, you know, to somebody's house, follow them home, little friend from school. And they'd say, did your mum say you could come here? And I'd go, yes. And of course she didn't. But that all <laughs> changed when uh, I went to ballet for the first time. And then that captivated my energy and everything about me. So I wasn't a runaway. I only wanted to run away to ballet. And I happened to have this amazing teacher in Rockhampton called Valerie Hansen. And um, she obviously saw something in me. I started quite late, really, at about eight. And then she pushed me through the years to, to get to Solo Seal and um, when I was 15, encouraged my parents to save some money and send me to the Royal Ballet School. So a little girl from Rockhampton goes to the Royal Ballet School. It's crazy. I, um, I love your description of your parents. And I think when I was reading your book, one of the reasons why I've enjoyed it so much is because your parents really remind me of my own. Uh-huh. And when you were talking about how your mum sets a table elaborately for Christmas the night before and choosing, you know, one piece of fabric to make multiple items of clothing for your siblings and, you know, the definition, I think you said, of a sweetheart, but could also threaten with a good old wooden spoon, although oh, yeah. she rarely used it. Yeah. 
And, um, and it was really lovely um, hearing you talk about your father and how he'd wake you up in the morning and go, hello, beautiful, time to get up. And he'd take you to ballet in the morning. And one of the things I loved was your description of, say, Miss Hansen running a little bit overtime and other parents being, you know, a bit grumpy because they wanted to go home and he'd patiently just wait in the car and and he was never grumpy and he'd just be like hello beautiful how's class and Mm. that is so my dad and so he sort of just made me feel very nostalgic and lucky about my own childhood growing up as a young ballerina but you had a nun called sister zita who said to your mom mary sounds like an elephant on the piano (laughs) but dances like a fairy explain how church taught you theater i loved that yeah well um, going to a little Catholic school, often each week we would, um, you know, go to somebody that had passed away in the parish, um, was having a funeral in the church, and it was somebody that, you know, most of us, well, we didn't know, but the family or the church knew. And so it, often the funerals would be on a Friday, and we would all go into the pews and sing. And I just remember the nearer my God to thee and we'd all be crying. We didn't even know who had passed away, but it was so sad, that hymn. And, um, and then, you know, confirmation and communion and you go up and you, you know, kiss the bishop's ring and all that sort of, you know, and Palm Sundays with the palms and people following and holding. It's like court, really. Yeah, I've and, never thought of it like that before. It's yeah. really dramatic. Yeah, and people go to drama classes and I go, oh, I learned it at church. Because we were sort of naughty in church as well. So. Yeah. But um, there were a lot of funerals and that did make you very sad. So that yeah. was easy to, to go from those happy to sad. I love that. <laughs> and, you, um, and you describe ballet class as a sanctuary away from the craziness of home life with seven siblings. How much of a role did ballet play in taming not only your self-described wild hair, but your possibly who you are today? I don't think I'm tame today. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, did, I did get to the Royal Ballet School mm-hmm. and I did have that unusual... Well, I was definitely a colonial in, in England, but they found me funny and entertaining and I had this extraordinary strength and ballon and um, I was injury free and that all comes from a, that easy background growing up in Queensland. Pe- people think ballerinas like little pale flowers, it's not true, or to get through an eight hour day without being injured. And the schedule, when I finally did get a job in London Festival Ballet, we did eight week tours mm. and performed eight shows a week. And you had to work. There was no sitting down. You had to pack your skip on Sunday night, pack it into theatre, put it in the bus, head back to London, be dumped at Victoria Station, go home, do your washing, get back on the train Monday morning, turn up in Liverpool, do a dress rehearsal of um, Sugar Plum and then perform that night and then continue for the rest of the week. So it was very, very gruelling and I was very strong. And so I did make it... I was so happy to be in the court of ballet and then at a certain point I sort of thought oh I think I can do that better and I think I can do that better and we had the most amazing ballerinas so I I learnt you know by watching and doing and then getting opportunities little small opportunities which get into bigger opportunities and being ready and being prepared and Valerie Hansen taught us this thing called pulling out which I don't think other people know so yeah if we did um 
learned to solo, she would say, well, this is a pulling out day, which meant she would dissect it and we do this little bit. Gotcha. And then this little bit. Yeah. And so when I was given soloist material, I could go, I knew exactly how to pull it out. So in my mind, I could technically, you know, separate little pieces and I could do a lot of work myself, which was sort of very necessary. So you, in those days, because it was a large company, you got the opportunity. And if you weren't able to figure it out yourself, you know, there wasn't time to coach and look after you. So that's that's sort of what I did. And then I ended up being a principal at 23. I did my first Swan Lake at uh, the Coliseum when I was 23. Mum and Dad came from um, uh, from Rockhampton to watch, although Mum had to have a couple of scotches and a Valium to cope with that one. I love one. that. <laughs> I, I know. love that. She was so genteel. Oh, I um speaking about your time in London, especially when you first moved over there as a girl from the Gold Coast, I can totally relate to moving yeah. somewhere cold, very young and your mum, you know, first priority is buying you a warm coat. And I, I wanted to know before we continue on with your career, your parents came to settle you into the Royal Ballet School for a whole month. And you have seven siblings. Like, where did they send the, the children? <laughs> so the, the children were each billeted. Two, two boys went to one family and two girls went to another family and the younger two went to another family. They were all very close families and we all lived within a sort of triangle of each other and all went to the same schools. Mm. And I think one was at boarding school. So that was, yeah, they came for four weeks. And my mum said it was like the beginning of, it was just the most, so my mum passed away last year and she said, your life was so interesting and it made my life even more interesting. So because then mum came to London then and then I came back the following year and then every year after that, one of the ballet mistresses said to my mum, you have to come and support her. And I've often said that to children that have gotten to the company here. You know, we've got a little girl from Japan. I've told the mother, you have to come. Another one from Melbourne, you have to come. You just don't leave them here. You have to come and support them. Mm. Family is such a huge part, yeah. of, part of your book. And, yeah. and I feel even at Queensland Ballet, it's such an important part of the culture here. And, and that's why I'm such a huge fan of Queensland Ballet. Yeah. But um, describe that first Christmas on your own, on the other side of the world, your first Nutcracker, Covent Garden, how did you feel? Um, well, I didn't, I loved going to Covent Garden. That was one of the treats of the Royal Ballet School. You could go, you didn't have to pay and you could go, you just had to have your name on the list, mm-hmm. um, standing room only, but it was just beautiful. And often there'd be one seat available in those little stores, those red velvet seats and um, Nutcracker was amazing. But I, um, I thought I'd be alone for Christmas, but I was in this class with Katie Wade. Her name was Katie Wade, and she just finished, uh, she just retired from Sadler's Wells, and she was very caring. And so the international students were in her class, and she invited us to her place for Christmas lunch, which is beautiful because I think I hadn't had a cooked meal at all. Yeah since you know I'd left home in the August so that was just amazing and we took a little gift and uh, I think she had four or five of us actually so it was it was uh, I still remember that roast beef and Yorkshire pudding it's such a treat when you're a young dancer living away from home for someone else cooking for you I know amazing you seemed really um self-aware as a young dancer you knew what your strengths were your musicality and your big jump and you also knew 
what you were not and you considered yourself far from an English rose and yeah. even chose later to have some surgery to remove a, a bump on your nose because you wanted to be considered for more softer roles yeah I'm wondering where this pragmatic maturity came from I feel like I was nowhere near that mature at that age yeah I don't know actually Do you know what I mean? no yeah. I, I just um I don't know I knew things the same about getting my um getting the my job in the in the first place because yeah. there was no internet at the Royal Ballet School, they looked after the the royal the um, the graduate class, you know, the class from that went through White Lodge, and we were there. But they, if we weren't going to get into the Royal Ballet, they didn't tell us no, they didn't where care. to no, no, <laughs> yeah. nothing. So, but I was a very friendly person, and I was always researching people, and so I just ended up talking to the whole world, and then I found out things. And little Janie Scott. Who became a great friend? She she said, "I'm doing an audition." And I said, "Audition for who?" She said, "London Festival Ballet." I said, "Well, I'm coming to that as well." And you know, I went to that too, and that's how I didn't get the job then. Janie got the job, yeah. But um, the ballet mistress uh, from Festival Ballet remembered me from a performance at Covent Garden. I was in the school performance, and I did a lead role, and so when she called me up. And said, "Can you come and re-audition because Rudolf Nureyev needed more dancers for his big production?" Mm. So I went, "I'm right there. I could find my way to Donmar Studios." Up I went. I went there for a week, and then I went into. The, I got the job. I went into the Royal Ballet School, and I said, "I'm gone. I've got a job." And they were so happy for me, and which meant, you know, also saved my parents' money. Because that was one of the biggest catalysts for you, wanting to find a, a job that was paying because you yeah. felt a bit guilty, did you, about yeah. your parents paying for your training at the Royal yeah, Ballet Yeah, and also I just felt I was ready. I wanted yeah. to be out, out into the world. And I was very lucky to get a job in an English-speaking com- company with um, yeah, and Rudolph working there and this amazing ballet mistress, Betty Anderton, who guided me towards being a ballerina and all those opportunities, Ben Stevenson, that's how I ended up in Houston because they all came through um, Festival Ballet and we performed so much. That's why I think I did so well because I am genuinely a performer mm. and I do better in performing than I do in the in general every day so um and for me it was a performing company i think we did something like 280 shows a year it sounded huge i was tired just reading about it yeah and also i got the schedule when i was writing the book and i was like oh my god i couldn't believe it the amount of work we did so um no, that what I mean. That was it. Was an incredible company, and people, international people, just came in and out all the time. So mm. it was so interesting. And we we were a touring company, so we travelled. Rudolph took us to Paris, to the New York, to Washington, to Italy. I mean, yeah, it was incredible. We were in Paris for five weeks. I think I was twenty. And he took us to Maxime's, you know, like it was, it was amazing. It seems like an, a world away from sort of the ballet world today a little bit. Yeah, I don't it's know. Very glamorous. It was, <laughs> we, we have that, that 10 year period from 77 to, actually it was a nine year period, 77 to 85 when Rudolph was there and created these large, incredible productions was an amazing bonding time like I'm still in touch with a lot of those people and we know it was very special Mm. and I think it was Rudolph really because the standard just went so yeah and it was just fascinating 
And then in 1984, you snuck out of rehearsals to watch Houston Ballet rehearse at Sadler's Wells. And yeah. This is where you first saw Lee. That's right. He was performing and um, and I was trying to be incognito, hiding <laughs> in the seat because I didn't know, if, wouldn't want Festival Ballet to know I was looking at yeah. another company. And he came into the seat and started chatting and I was trying to hide and he thought I was very rude. He was trying to say, because he'd seen me perform the night before and he said, oh, I wanted to, he thought, you know, he loved what, I, what I'd done. Yeah. And um, so that was our first meeting. And then a year later, I decided that I wanted to work with Ben Stevenson. And I knew that at 27, I either had to make the move or, you know, I wouldn't be able to do it. And so I made the move and then Lee was my partner. And so at 27, you left for Houston Ballet, um, yep. ready for a new challenge and a fresh start. Yeah. From Dramp, Deary, Dreary, London. Yeah. What was it like moving to Houston, which was a completely different vibe yeah it was very strange yeah i have to say and i couldn't drive and so it was texas and i had to get a car and try you know get um lessons to learn to drive and i did eventually in the first three months because i had to drive and uh, i have to say that ben stevenson was amazing and he he treated you know his top dancers really like family mm. so I was very included and it was it was very different because they didn't perform as much so I found that quite difficult but and it was all new repertoire so I ended up doing a brand new Swan Lake at the city center in New York mm. first up my first five weeks my mum came and saw that which is amazing and then Ben took us to see Cleo Lane I mean he was just amazing he bought me a beautiful um evening dress to wear it was red wasn't it red with sequins what director does that and I think that's sort of how a little bit how Lee has learned to be a director too yeah as through Ben's teaching yeah you say that joining Houston was full of um, responsibility and possibility. What did you mean by that? Responsibility and possibility. Um, I don't know. I guess I, because I was sort of, you know, on my own and starting again. So I really did have to start again. And then I remember being quite sort of homesick for London at one point and thinking, well, that's not good enough. Just pick up the phone. I picked up the phone to a friend, a lady that I'd met at one of the functions, and she became a great friend. Yeah. So. Tell us about being promoted to principal artist over tea. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was fascinating. So John Field was a very old-fashioned English director, and he, uh, I think he directed the Royal Ballet as well, but mainly Sadler's Wells, and he directed our company, and he gave me the opportunity to do my Swan Lake. And before we did that season, we were out in Oxford, I think, and he asked me for afternoon tea to the hotel. I was like, oh. And and so we had an afternoon tea and he promoted me to principal dancer, which was just very special, I think. I love it. And um, speaking about Swan Lake, I loved the little nods to Australia throughout. You were talking about how when you had to jump off the three metre rock at the end of Swan Lake, that all the trampoline action with your siblings paid off. It's beautifully sprinkled throughout the book and it just just makes you feel very 
I know. Yeah, the trampoline was quite useful, I think. I yeah. don't know if I had Ballon or the trampoline gave me Ballon, but the Ballon was really useful. Yeah. Well, I, that was my thing as a dancer, jumping. Yeah. I love jumping and I spent a lot of time a tramp on the trampoline. Yeah. So maybe maybe that's got something to do with yeah, it. Possibly, why, I why don't Australians know. Because not a lot of dancers have that kind of Ballon, mm. So which was great for, you know, Giselle. So I did both Queen of the Willies and, and Giselle, which a lot of dancers don't do both. But yeah, I um I wanted to move into a little bit of a love section. So yeah. you describe Lee and yourself as made for each other in yeah. relation to being dance partners. Yeah. When did you know that you may be made for each other in more ways than just dance? Yeah. Well, I I didn't intend to um you know marry or even and definitely not have a partner on the stage because I know it's a limited life as well, and I sort of assumed I'd be a ballet mistress or something like that. But um, Lee had other ideas and I think he didn't want to let me go. And, and I found him just fascinating and interesting and thinking, where is this man going to go? And, um, and then, well, I found out in my marriage. <laughs> and, and so it's been, it's been a fascinating few years and he's just an amazing partner, particularly when we had our daughter who ended up having a being uh, diagnosed profoundly deaf and having his huge support my whole life because I think that's very difficult in families that have children with disabilities. Definitely. You at 30 fell pregnant with Sophie, but it came with really mixed emotions. I'd love you to explain, I guess, the inner workings of most dancers when something like this happens and you're not quite ready to give up the stage, but at the same time, very happy to give it up for what's to come. Yeah, I, look, I think it's very difficult with ballerinas, eh, because you don't know how your body's going to react and you don't know what, you know, is going to happen to you. And in, in when I was pregnant, um, there was no maternity leave and you weren't guaranteed a job back. Luckily for me, Ben Stevenson said, of course, congratulations. And, you know, you will. I went back to exactly the position I was in and so I was very determined I, I stayed in shape and I danced I mean I didn't I danced the first three months I still did, finished on Nutcracker and then Sophie was born in July and then I um but I did bars and you know even jumping right up until the very end and um and then two months after I had Sophie I went back to getting into shape when Lee's parents came and looked after her and then Lee and I both took Sophie to Hong Kong and we did our first sugar plum it was five months after she was born but I was so happy we had the perfect life you um a funny part of the book which I said to I said to my mother is this true and she goes I wouldn't know you said you described labor contractions as worse than any ballet injury (laughs) yeah as someone who's never had a child is this true (laughs) yeah yeah pretty bad pretty bad Oh, it's so funny. It's pretty scary, but it's all worth it. Okay. Yeah. I'll take your word for yeah. it. I, um, I wanted to know, there's a part in the book, it's so funny. Um, you barely knew Lee when one day he saw your mum having breakfast and he just invited himself to join her. Yeah. He obviously had the hots for you. But, and, but he's very quietly confident or, or was, it, was it just he wanted to, you know, get closer to you? What do you think? I don't know. He's just, um, <laughs> he's just charming. He's just like that. That's the sort of thing he would do and he's 
very charming about he would realize that I'm a principal dancer he would have realized that my mother came from you know another Australia or whatever and he would just be like he just he thinks about other people so we would have been just checking that she was okay knowing she was my mother yeah I don't you know although I knew he loved dancing with me we loved dancing with mm. each other it was just like so easy yeah. What I love about your book is um, you're very honest in how you both got together and how you forced Lee to be honest about his love for you. Sometimes men just need a little bit of a push, don't they? Yeah, well, I thought so. <laughs> I thought so. I loved and, it. And um, yeah, because sometimes they don't know where they're going and, and they, well, that's fine if you don't know where you're going, but then I'm not hanging around. Yeah. Good. I loved that you did that. Yeah. I like that part. Yeah. Um, before I get a little bit more into your return to Australia and family life, I'd love to know what was it like being coached by Margot Fontaine? Oh, she was beautiful. Beautiful. Very, um, very kind. She wasn't worried about me. I did. I both co- co- she coached me in Swan Lake and um, Sleeping Beauty. Um, and she was really, it really changed my view of Swan Lake. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, because we, as youngsters, we were all copying all the Russians and Mm. she just really talked about the romance of the man and the woman just in the swan costume and it changed my whole idea of the swan lake and it became a much bigger story for me and I followed that all, instead of just trying to be the swan yeah i just i thought of it as a as a woman in a in a with a swan like um uh body but yeah so that was fascinating even some of the stuff that she did was very old-fashioned but very true and then in in beauty she just made it so easy because she was just so about the music you know and the balances just all right on that note that's all right just on that note on that note do you, yeah. do you think sometimes these days dancers forget about the music or the romance of the roles? Or? Oh, I do. Mm. I do. I, I mean, I think that happens phrases before, you know, the music. It's, you know, I keep saying to them, listen to in between the note. Don't just, you know, the nuance of in between the note and then you're already there and feel where your body's going before you step or before you mime or, yeah, whatever. I mean, the longer I teach, it's all about the music. I love that. Mm. Um, so your return to Australia pretty much sort of started when you're invited back to perform in an all-Australian gal- gala by Maynard Gilgood. And do you do you think when you had that taste of coming home that it was just set in stone, you wanted to come back to Australia? No, no, no? definitely. I, no, I didn't want to come back to Australia. I just wanted to see my family and yeah. have that opportunity to definitely to show them um, you know have my family see me dance and particularly with Lee even better and then for my daughter to come along with as well was amazing. Whilst your decision to retire was the ultimate sacrifice um, I guess it was an easy choice wasn't it for love for family for Sophie? Yeah I don't think I I thought about it too much I, I was we I, after Sophie was diagnosed with deafness it was totally devastating we thought we had one child and we had another um, child and it was very 
it was really sad. It was sad for both of us, very sad for Lee, and he had to be strong for me. And we knew that she would never talk to Lee's parents because she wouldn't understand that. And I knew she wouldn't hear music. So, I mean, so many emotions. But I had to go to work and we had to do this tour. And at the end of the tour, I was coming off on ghost dances with a group of dancers and we go around in a circle and we bow our head and we walk back. And I thought, she's never going to hear this music and this is going to be... Uh, this is going to be it I have to be with her who else can who else can teach her and I was just like I I, I just have to hear her voice and so that moment I decided that um, that her life and our lives as a family was more important than one more performance although I say to people could people say that (laughs) must be so devastating but the thing is your passion for dance no matter what you do stays with you so it doesn't matter. It doesn't go anywhere. It's inside of you. And I think it stayed inside of me. And, and Lee let me coach him. And then I taught the Australian Ballet and lots of other people. And so that passion in me has never... So maybe it did a few less shows, but um, that passion has carried me through life and made my life more interesting. And so f- certainly for me and for my family, we have learned an enormous amount of of things about life and people with disabilities that we never would have learned if it hadn't touched our lives. Definitely. You you did dance again, though. Please share the show and tell story that you and Lee danced oh for Sophie's school friends. <laughs> I thought that was great. Why was that so important for Sophie and for you? Oh, because we, we, we didn't have anything else to show. We didn't have any <laughs> show. And, and also we didn't want to, like, go and talk about something because Sophie couldn't hear. It's just easy to it's show and tell. Yeah, so She's um, got two principal ballerinas. Yeah, so parents. I said, you know, Go why don't it. we um, do? And we did the Corsair part of Dur, and they thought it was great. I'm sure all the parents wanted to come as well. But and I don't even know if we've got some photos. We should have some photos of that somewhere. But yeah, it was that. You know, once I think um, Lee made dumplings for one of my daughters' show and tell <laughs> because he wasn't around very often. So we could, did try to like push it a bit for show and tell that's so funny how was ballet like speech therapy for sophie how was it yeah so are you you like tedious yeah you likened ballet to really helpful for very her. tedious mm. and i was the i was a real ballet mum were you oh shocking with the speech therapy and i'd be like come on come on and i'd be like you know lollies if she did something well you know because we started off with woof woof and meow and any little progress she made was just like you know was my progress too so we did this together it was very tedious and it was difficult and there was no internet there was nothing you did all all by feel and and all the other children were like miles ahead of her so I don't know how it was ever going to happen and then I went to an amazing therapist and she said the implant had just sort of come out but there was no good news about it and they were only starting to do children so it was sort of way off Mm. in the distance and um and she said you know if you could buy the implant without having the operation would you do it I said definitely I would try it and then she said she's always going to be hard of hearing in a hearing world with hearing aids so after that she was in Dallas I used to take Sophie see I was a I was a researcher I would Mm. fly to Dallas just to see this woman with her speech therapy 
and she's everyone else said don't and she said go and get the implant it it works and I just understood that thing that if I could get Sophie to have a channel to hear then I could teach the language because they're two separate things Mm. for deaf children doesn't just because they don't overhear so you have to put in the language so I understood that without a channel channel it wouldn't matter how hard I worked she she wasn't going to manage so and then we had the implant and she was switched on I had to guess how loud and how soft the sounds were because she couldn't really say um by her facial expressions wasn't mm, it yeah and her yeah. reaction mm. and we we did get a good map and then a couple of weeks later I, I i i could see she could hear i could just see it mm. and then i don't know six months later she started babbling crazily and that was just which she hadn't done before it's amazing so, so it was amazing and now her speech is it's amazing beautiful what was it like watching her perform at first ballet concert nerve-wracking <laughs> really nerve-wracking she was beautiful but um you know that was just so nerve-wracking but ballet's great because you practice things over and over again you would have been really good at doing the hair and makeup yeah I was pretty good yeah pretty good (laughs) I don't think my children were very patient but anyway I was pretty good I often did a little bit of choreography as well for the local ballet school yes you started um teaching that's sort of how you started teaching because yeah, yeah, you asked yeah, her ballet teacher is that yeah. correct if there are any roles going yeah so I did a little you know a Monday night class when Lee would come home from um work and then I um she asked if I would help her with the concert and I helped her with the concert I think Sophie was about eight and I did um La Dare, the entrance with all the little girls and walking into arabesque and everything so it was quite fun and um, and then I taught at a place called Dance World, which was professional because I could only do it when the children were at school. Uh, but it was great because it kept my hand in and they were sort of older children. So half of them still remember me. We've got somebody working in dance education that I taught, you know, many years ago. Wow. Yeah. And, um, and then I went, then the Australian Ballet, David McAllister hired me and I taught there for 10 years, which was great because I... Um, they weren't working full-time all year round and they went to Sydney so then I'd have a break. Oh, good. Yeah, so it was good because it was a busy life with three children. It would have been because Sophie's not your only child. You had Bridie and Tom as well. That's right. And and Lee was away a lot because once he wrote his book, that's why I never wanted to write my book because it's so much work. Yes. And I knew it. So I was like, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I work so hard anyway. I'm not going to work all day and all night. And Sophie was like, you have to do it, Mum. You have, to, you have to write, it's an important book for, for people and a lot of her friends. Well, I'm certainly glad you wrote it because uh, honestly, like I, I absolutely love it. It's Great. one. Of, it's now one of my favorite books, and I haven't oh. even finished yet. But <laughs> you, you actually had Sophie help you with the process of writing oh, it. Oh yeah, massively. So, so um, I'd love to know how. <laughs> oh, so so um, I ref, you know, I refused and refused and refused. She says, "Mum, so okay, you can just do audio." And I just thought, oh, that's so good for her hearing and all of that. Mm-hmm. And um, and then and she said, just write anything, you know. Just and I said, and so I said, what should I do? And no, she said, start at the beginning. So she would come and wake me up, and take a pen and a piece of paper, and we go for coffee. And she just go write something. I go write what? No, no, <laughs> just start. And then I'd start somewhere, and I started at the beginning. 
And then I had the first chapter and I wrote little stories of what happened in our family, which is hilarious. And she was reading it and just said, Mum, this is just so funny and so brilliant. I said, it's actually what happened. And my family is particularly quirky um, because Neil and Coralie, Neil, they were just very special. And I she, love your parents in the book. <laughs> I do. And she was just laughing her head off. And I remember when she was about 14, she was like, Mum, teach me to be funny. It's really hard to teach deaf people. We're not signing people, but yeah. people that, you know, learn orally. Um, you know, those nuances because they just slightly miss them. So, um, so that was just a joy for me. And then, um, then I would write and she would type it up and then she did the negotiations with Penguin. Wow. So they, she did everything. I didn't do a single email. So So when, when did this process start? Oh, two and a half years ago. Yeah. So we had about 160,000 words. She typed it all up. She sent it to Penguin. We flew down there. They gave us a contract. So it was Lee's publisher, Lee's editor, and her daughter is the publisher. So we were sitting across mother, daughter, mother, daughter. Oh, that's beautiful. Pretty extraordinary, actually. I mean, and Julie is retired now, and she was um, just desperate for the book, and so she she wangled her way through Sophie. Mm. And then Sophie had this time because she was waiting for a visa for... Um, to, to work in Shanghai. And I was like, Sophie, I can't, can't finish this without you. And she said, you'll be fine, Mum. And then Julie took over the editing process and then started asking a lot of questions. And that ended up 460,000 words. And then the joy was fin- finally editing the book with Lee and Sophie and myself and having Sophie, you know, oh, Mum, that's... Oh, I don't like that comma there. I don't like. Are just amazing. Who would have thought? Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it's and what a beautiful thing to do together. I'm really close with my mum as well, and so yeah. I don't know. I think it's it's extra special when you can collaborate on something yeah. together. Yeah, I um I love the part in the book where you actually admitted to. The fact that Lee wrote his book was because you said, I'm so sick of hearing your story at dinners. You need to just write this book and be done with it. (laughs) And hand it to people when they ask. So where do you come from? And I go, and you go, (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I thought it was so funny. I mean, it's very honest and Mm. and I'd probably be the same. I'm sick of hearing this story. Can we just be done with it? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, like I said, I love the beautiful references to the Australian, Australian culture whilst describing balletic movements. I think one of my favourite in the book is when you were describing a um, contemporary curling of the spine like a contraction yeah. and you likened it to a barbecue prawn. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the best. I loved it so much. And um, one thing, though, I guess when we read books, we, we try and think about the theme and, and you know the meaning behind it. And I keep thinking about your first major performance on the Royal Opera House stage and you described it as feeling a little bit empty because your first ballet teacher and your family weren't there. The theme of family, I guess, and its importance runs so strongly throughout the book and your writing is this a love story is it or is it a reminder of the importance of family or is it both I think both yeah Yeah. um family the strength of family I mean you just think yeah you're so fortunate we I mean all my siblings too we just think we're so lucky every day and um Lee and I've been married 33 years and yeah we have three beautiful children and 
I fell in love with Lee's family in China and they're amazing and my beautiful nieces in Melbourne. And so, you know, because the Chinese nieces kept coming, I kept saying, I can't take any more. <laughs> so funny. Yeah. As the saying goes, um, behind every great man is, is an even greater woman. But the thing that I love about you two is that you seem to be such beautiful equals and such cheerleaders for one another. Um, your determination and your strength and, and basically your respect for one another, I find it really inspiring. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I, um, being the Balanced Ballerinas podcast, we always uh, finish with what is your number one tip for leading a balanced life? Oh. It's a big question, but it could be anything. Question. Um, I think love, really, hmm. and positivity. Probably looking on the looking on the bright side because you can get all doom and gloom, can't you? Yeah. And having a sense of humour about yourself and true to oneself, be true to oneself. Yeah. I love it. I think I was just thinking then, I think one of the reasons why I, I really loved reading your book over the past week was because we live in such a crazy world at the moment and I yeah. feel very lucky to live in Australia yeah. and your book is a beautiful nod to, yeah, you true. know, international, but also, you know, that Australian but, yeah. quality of life. <laughs> yeah. And so thank you so much. Yeah. I, um, it's been an absolute honor. Um, I'll let everybody know that Mary's last dance is available now from all major book retailers and congratulations. You must be thrilled. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I am and enjoy the book. Thank you. I will. Thank you.